0: Good morning. How are y'all? That was awful. Y'all not, y'all not ready for Christmas? Are you, are you sad? You sad about Christmas? You glad about Christmas? There we go. There we go. Uh, I can't believe it's already here. Can you? It's crazy. Thursday is Christmas Eve, and we're going to have our Christmas Eve services at 1 and 3 And uh, you will have the opportunity as you leave today. You may have grabbed some as you came in. These invite cards. Let me just, I think they call this casting vision. Let me just give you a little bit of the vision behind this so that you'll understand. Actually, Christmas Eve was something that that we protected uh, for many, many years here at Springwell. We didn't do a Christmas Eve service. And the reason that we didn't was because I feel like that we have phenomenal volunteers. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Absolutely over-the-top phenomenal volunteers. And we have an incredible staff, and so they, these are people that give so much every Sunday, every day of the year. And so on Christmas, it just seemed like to me that, you know what, you guys just need to be with your families. And so I really fought it for a long time, and, and then I've come to understand that the number one time of the year, the number one service that people will actually attend, unchurched people will attend, is Christmas Eve, and that, that kind of got me. So we've played with the times a little bit, and so we've come up with one in three that still gives, um, still gives everybody an opportunity to be home and to be with your families on Christmas Eve. Now, what you may not understand is that on Christmas Eve, when you're still maybe getting some things together for Christmas Eve, there'll actually be people that will start to gather on this campus as early as 10 o'clock that morning. And so they go through a lot of work just to, just to be prepared that when you get here, that you get the very best that we have to give. So... <clears throat> now, some of you maybe heard me say last week. You know that you have family and friends, and 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 that and you love your church, right? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You love your church, and so you want to like you want to show your church off, don't you? Yeah. That was a little weaker. <laughs> you want to show your church off, right? Come, yeah. yeah. And so you and you want to invite you know your family and friends that maybe go to other churches, and you want to bring them to Springwell and go like we're the best. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not kidding. Who am I? That is the truth, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And you can do that, and I'm I'm thankful that you are proud of your church, but please, please hear me. What I hope more than anything in this world that you do is that you engage in some folks that don't go to church, and you invite them. Because, again, if what they say is true, and that Christmas Eve is going to be that time when an unchurched person will actually come to church then you want to make sure that you invite them and put this in their hands. And why do you do that? So they won't forget because I'm old and I forget. That's why I bring this up here to remind me of exactly when everything is going on. So anyway, make sure that you give somebody uh, an an invitation uh, to be here. And then tell them, you know what, we'll sit together. How cool is that? That'd be awesome. So will you help me do that? Now, just so you know, I'll go ahead and give you a little insight. I'm actually going to talk about peace. Um, The greatest gift is God's son. And what God's son brings into every life and what he's brought to my life especially is peace. We're living in some crazy times, aren't we? So I think that there's some people that are gonna be looking for that, that peace, that peace of mind that I can still have peace in my heart. So you want to invite as many unchurched church people as you possibly can on Christmas Eve. We're going to have a great time. Well, today we're going to finish up our series called The Gift. And uh, we've been looking at, in case you've missed, we've been looking at the three gifts, the three different gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. And one of the challenges to the traditional nativity scene is that there were very likely more than just three wise men. I know, I know, I know. If you've got a nativity scene, there's three wise men, but really there could have been as many as a dozen. In fact, some scholars believe there could have even been maybe dozens, not just one dozen, not just two dozens, but maybe dozens of wise men, which were really going to get your nativity scene really, really crowded, right? Right? Another challenge according to most scholars is that, that that the wise men however many there were they didn't even show up until maybe Jesus was maybe 18 months maybe 2 years old. Now, when you think about baby Jesus in the manger, that's sweet. Come on, y'all with me. We can sing it together silent night. You got a candle? Don't you want to just bring out your light or something? You can't, you can't do this, church. But, I mean, like, do you want to do that right now? It's just a sweet, sweet thing. But let me just say, a two-year-old? I know what you're thinking. He's Jesus. He was two years old. He was fully God and fully human. I bet at two years old he was, you can see that fully human side. Hello? Can you imagine? So how many of you have a two-year-old? How many of you have had a two-year-old? How many of you have been around a two-year-old? Like at a restaurant? (laughs) Or silent night, holy night? Wasn't what you was thinking? (laughs) I'm just saying that when you picture this scene, and again, it's Christmas, and we have those images in our head locked in for many, many years of what we've been taught, And yet when you look at the truth and you think about it just for a second, that Jesus was two years old and what you have is maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen, maybe three dozen men that were down on their knees worshiping a two-year-old. Maybe Mary was just trying to get him to settle down. Jesus, get off, get off that counter. Jesus, get over here. I don't know. It's just different, right? Let's jump into Matthew chapter 2. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we talked about gold and frankincense in the first couple of weeks, and today we're going to specifically talk about this gift of myrrh, which probably is brand new thought for some of you. Myrrh, for those of you that don't know, it's a very valuable gum-like substance that's actually, I didn't know this until this year. I really, really work hard to maybe bring you something new that you've never heard. I had no idea that it's actually mentioned 17 times in the Bible. And everybody went, oh, you didn't know, right? 17 different times that the, this myrrh is actually mentioned. And... Um, Occasionally, myrrh would even be used as an antiseptic. For example, if you know the story of Jesus on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain. But Jesus said, no, I don't want anything that would dull the pain. I want to take the full brunt. I want to experience all of the pain that the cross has to bring. More commonly, though, myrrh was was known as an ingredient used to embalm the dead, which if you think about it, it's a little weird of a gift to be bringing a baby, right? I even even did a Google with, I even tried to search that too. Like, would this be a common thing? Maybe back in the day, I know it's kind of freaky for us now, but maybe back in the day, and everybody I read said the very same thing. No, that would be a weird gift to take a baby even back in the day. It would still be a weird gift that you would bring a baby. So myrrh, according to all scholars, really every scholar out there, agrees that it represents Jesus as the suffering servant. Or it represents him as the Lamb of God who was born to take away the sins of the world by dying on the Roman cross. So this morning I want to go to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. And I want to show you how myrrh represents Jesus as the suffering servant. But before I do, I want to give you just, just a little bit of a thought about Isaiah the prophet. Because here's what I think happens. If, you, if you've been in church your whole life, you've probably heard maybe even this passage that I'm going to read, and you hear that Isaiah was a prophet, and you hear that, but you don't really know what it means to think that he was a prophet. So let me begin by asking you this question. How many of your are football fans? If you're a football fan, maybe you used to be a football fan, you're not one anymore, get your hand up anyway. You're a football fan, right. Just imagine... Imagine, if you will, that this morning I had the power, I had the ability to predict what two teams would play in the Super Bowl in a couple of months. You'd want to be my friend, right? Not that any of you bet, but you got other friends that bet, right? But not only could I predict the two teams, because you might think, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, really, maybe in your head, it looks like it's pretty obvious who's going to be in the Super Bowl. But what if I could tell you the exact score? What if I could predict the, the exact score? Would you be impressed? That'd be pretty awesome. But what if, what if the world is still around and football is still popular 700 years from now? And I could predict the two teams that would be in the Super Bowl, that would play in the Super Bowl, what if I could predict the exact score, but what if I could go further than that? What if I could tell you the names of both quarterbacks? What if I could give you their stats? What if I could tell you that at the end of the game, this one threw for 300 yards, 35 completions out of 45 passes? What if I could give you his stats? That would be amazing. If I could do that, I would be like the prophet man, right? But that's exactly what Isaiah did. 700 years before. Now, maybe you've been in church your whole life and that's not a big deal. But quite honestly, I talk to people, I talk to a lot of people that don't believe in God at all. And God blesses me and that my path gets to cross their paths. And, and I get a chance to talk to people. And sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes those people, they aren't mean. They aren't malicious. They're not trying to be hard to get along with. They're not angry at God. They just say, you know what? I'm just really, honestly, I don't want to say it to you, but I'm, I'm too smart, really, to buy into the whole Jesus thing. And then I love them to take them to a passage like this and say, but a man prophesied. He was able to foretell exactly what would happen 700 years before. So we're going to look at Jesus as a suffering servant. But before we do, I want to show you our problem because we all have a very real problem, right? And Isaiah Isaiah talks about that problem that we have in Isaiah 53, verse 6. I love how he starts off, and this is not in my notes, because honestly, I've thought about it, and this morning, it just hit me again. I love how Isaiah starts. He says, all us, all of us like sheep, all of us. Now, maybe that didn't mean a whole lot to you, but it does to me. Let me tell you why it does. It's because sometimes, over the years, I grew up in churches where preachers would sometimes come across like the sinners were all y'all out there. You know what I'm talking about? Hello, y'all been to that church? And he said, I was always the person out there and I would always think like he'd just taking the Bible and beating the snot out of me out of it, you know? Like he'd talk about sin and he would look at me like, you sinner? And I'd say, yeah, I'm guilty. But Isaiah doesn't start that way. He is a prophet of all prophets and what he starts off by saying is, I'm included in this description. All we, all of us like sheep. And unfortunately, that's not a compliment. Now, if Isaiah had said, oh, we like lions, get your roar on. I don't know how to do that. Argh! Are y'all y- 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 with me? If he had said, oh, we like lions, you could stick out your chest and that's what I'm talking about. If he had said, oh, we like eagles, you got that picture in your head of an eagle soaring high above, majestically soaring over, flying, that would be awesome. But that's not what he said. He said, oh, we like sheep. So essentially, he was saying, you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Sheep were basically known for three things, or so I read. This is awesome. They were weak, they were witless, and they were wayward. The three W's. That's awesome, isn't it? Weak, witless, Yeah, And by weak, I mean, they don't have, like, poisonous fangs. They don't have quills. This is terrible, but I thought about this one this morning. They don't have any stink. Skunk. I'm thinking of a skunk. That's what I was thinking of, right? Y'all with me? So like a skunk, when a skunk is scared, what does a skunk do? Sprays. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have. That probably didn't look good for a Sunday morning, did it? He will spray you. Well, I mean, a sheep doesn't have any of those things. They're they're not fast. They can't fly away. They don't blend in like they couldn't just like get in front of a rock and they got nothing. They're weak. They're witless. In in other words, they don't think for themselves. They just tend to follow other stupid, witless sheep. I love this story. I've been telling this story for years. I'm going to tell it again because it's an awesome story. Literally back in 2005 in Turkey, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other off of a cliff. 1,500. Y'all with me? You're feeling better about yourself right now, right? I ain't that dumb. I mean, somewhere along the line, you would think, I don't know. Maybe 100 sheep's gone off that cliff, and you would think maybe one sheep would say, you know what, I remember Joe going off. I ain't heard from him since. We ought to be hearing from him by now. Somebody should be saying something. 1,500 sheep follow each other off of a cliff. The bad news is 400 of those sheep died. 400 of those sheep died. The others were saved because those first 400 that died provided like a sheep pillow. you got to come to Springwell to get this. You're not going to get this other places. I'm just telling you right now. They're witless and they're wayward. Here's the thing. They just wander. Just like those 1,500 sheep. Left to themselves, they're witless and they will just wander. Now they know that there's a shepherd and that shepherd's job is to take care of them. And so what I read is this, is that it is a very difficult job to be a shepherd because those sheep will just wander off in any, at any moment and you won't have a clue to where they went. They wonder. So the prophet Isaiah said, all of us like sheep. And so he wasn't saying, wow, you guys are amazing. He was saying, you know what, we're really stupid. And he was was including himself in that description. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. And yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now, this was 700 years before. 700 years before. It's pretty amazing. Then he says in verse 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly. And yet, he never said a word. What? And if you're like brand new to church and you just don't know how harshly he was treated, we'll get into that in just a minute. For those of you that have been around for a while, this is not your first church rodeo. You understand what that means. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Let me ask you something. Who does that? Who does that in our culture? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody's going to do that in our culture. In fact, I'll be honest with you. If you're in our culture and you're being oppressed, then there's a group somewhere out there that will come along beside you to fight for you if you're not willing to fight for yourself. We're all about our rights. That our rights are being protected. And yet, his rights were not being protected. And he never said a word. Well, Jesus was on a mission. He was on a mission that he knew would take him to the cross. And he didn't fight it. Let me back up a few verses. That's our problem, is that we're like sheep. Let's look at what Isaiah said he would go through. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So we rejected him and he accepted us. Y'all out there? Verse 5 He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. That's just a fancy word for sin. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace. What? The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And it's, it's by his wounds that we're healed. It's Christmas. And Silent Night, Holy Night. Man, there are churches all over the world, I'm sure. They're singing that this morning. It's awesome. But there's more to it than that. And here's what I have believed my whole ministerial life. Because I know what did it for me. I, I, I know what turned me into a Jesus follower. It was understanding the magnitude of his suffering and the depth of his love for a dumb sheep like me. And when you get that, you won't just casually say, I'm a Christian. You won't just casually say, yeah, I, I, you know, I go to church. Yeah, I, I go to church. You know what they say now? Uh, they say that if you attend church once a month, you're actually a frequent attender. They used to count how many people attended your church by the weekly number. And I've been told, I, I don't keep up with those kind of things, but I've been told now that they don't do that anymore. They do actually do it by the month. Because we know we have first Sunday people, second Sunday people, third Sunday people. I'm just saying that when you truly understand what he did for us, the only reasonable response is to fully surrender your life and follow him. It's it's the only reasonable response. So I want to try to describe it. I'm not going to do a great job. Honestly, the first service, I found myself in a place that I don't think I normally find myself when I'm up here doing my thing. I don't know how to describe that thing, but it's, it's a weird place kind of. And I hope you'll stay with me. And I don't just do this on Sunday. It's not just something I talk about around Christmas or Easter. It's, it's the very thing that I get to share with people almost on a daily basis. Because when I want to talk to somebody about the love of Jesus, if I want them to understand the power of God and why I've given my life to Jesus, this is what I try to convey to them. Let's start with the Garden of Gethsemane. What do you say? That was the place that, let's just be honest, that Jesus wrestled with God. I wrote he wrestled with God, and then every time I read that, I think, that's not accurate. He wrestled with his father, who had always been in the most intimate of relationships, and he wrestled with him. He wrestled with him when he got a glimpse of what was coming. The the literal suffering that he would face on the cross. And so Mark records that when Jesus was going into the garden get him to pray, he looked at his closest friends, his his best buds, those who had walked with him for the last three years, who had seen him work miracles, turn water into wine and, and feed multitudes of people with a few sardines and some saltine crackers. I mean, they saw him work miracles and he walks in and he says, look, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, just watch and pray with me. And then he goes into the garden and he falls face first and he, and he cries out in agony, Father, if there is any way, I don't want to go through that. His best buds are asleep. And Jesus says, but whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Not my will, but your will, your will be done. And then Judas I don't know why this got me this year. Judas betrays him. How does he betray him? With a kiss. I thought, I don't know why that just stuck to me this year and for some reason different. I mean, I've been betrayed. I've been betrayed before. It's not my my, my first rodeo betrayal, but I don't know that I've ever been betrayed by a kiss. I don't know that I literally have had someone to walk up to me and give me a kiss on the cheek knowing that literally that kiss would would mark me and they arrested him he was falsely accused unfairly tried and he was sentenced to death by crucifixion by crucifixion he would be stripped naked and he would be beaten almost to death he would go through a thing called a scourging that would, that would render, literally, his inside organs would have been exposed. That's how bad the beating was. They put a crown of thorns on his head made of thorns that were maybe two inches or longer. And they just didn't make a crown of thorns to represent him. They took that crown of thorns and somehow, I, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know... Where their attitude was, I don't know where their hatreds, st- I don't know what it stemmed from they just pushed that crown of thorns down into his brow. And they laughed at him. They literally spit in his face. And they said, "Hail Jesus, King of the Jews!" to people who he, had, he hadn't done anything. He hadn't wronged in any way. He was only guilty of healing their sick. Loving the unlovely. And they're angry. Isaiah 50 says that they literally pulled out his beard by the handful. And I read this many years ago from a a doctor that I don't believe was a Christian. And he just looked at the crucifixion and everything that Jesus went through, and I remember that this doctor concluded that, you know what, he probably would not even have been recognizable as a human being after the beating that he took. They literally hit Jesus. The Greek word comes from a Latin word that means to pugilate. They literally hit an angry group of people, punched Jesus in the face over and over and over and over again. It it doesn't make any sense. But seven hundred years before Isaiah said this would happen, then weak and suffering and alone, he was alone. Where where were all of his followers then? Where were his his twelve? Where were the eleven? They were gone. They'd give him a cross bar weighing somewhere between 100, maybe 200 pounds and they forced him to carry it up. And this was some new research. 650 yards on a path known as the way of suffering to a Golgotha. 650 yards. They would take nails about seven inches long and they would drive them into his wrist, through his wrist and into the cross and then They would put one foot on top of the other and drive another nail through both feet and into the cross. The only way that he could possibly breathe would have been to push with everything he had on that nail in his feet and to pull up with the nails that were in his wrist until finally his shoulders would have dislocated. his legs would have been so weak he wouldn't have had the strength to push up anymore. And he slowly, slowly died under the heat of of the hot sun. And that was only the beginning. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore the sins of the world and became everything vile and everything filthy and everything unholy and everything demonic. He he took all of that on. You think of, of your stuff. We all have our stuff, right? And I've been through 12-step studies, and I've loved the, the honesty that I've been able to, to have with those people going through that study when you're able to literally just bare your soul. And maybe in a way that's more painful than you can imagine, but to talk about the nastiness that's inside of you and to trust another human being with that. Could you imagine what Jesus felt when he felt every sin that's ever, that's ever been? He, he experienced it all, all of your guilt, all of your shame. The the nastiness that the world has to offer. He became that. And then God in his righteousness and holiness couldn't look upon that sin and so he pulls away. And intimacy with his father was broken. And maybe in the most agonizing moment of his life, He literally cries out, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you leaving me now? I'm doing what you sent me to do. I'm fulfilling everything that Isaiah said would happen. I've fulfilled everything. Why will you leave me now? They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. The very thing that they would use to embalm him at his death. And he says, no. I don't want anything to numb the pain. I want to feel the full brunt of the sin and the cross. And then he declares in faith, it's finished. (laughs) Tetelestai is that word so powerful to me that I have to read it and I have to be reminded and when I get discouraged and when I get overwhelmed with me that I'm able to look at that word and I'm able to think wait a minute but what Jesus did on the cross everything that he did on the cross he did for me and when it was all over with he said it's finished it's done I did what what I was supposed to do I was faithful and the prophet Isaiah 700 years before this ever took place prophetically declared that this innocent child Would be born of a virgin, never sin, and would endure unspeakable pain on our behalf for our sin. Isaiah continued, he said he had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and put into a rich man's grave. How would he know? 700 years before, how would he know? How is that possible? Then Isaiah says, When when he sees that all is accomplished, and by his anguish he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted what? I can't hear you. That doesn't make any sense. That's not fair. That's not fair. How can that be fair? That we are sinners and that we continue to sin. I mean, the only thing we're good at is sinning, right? And that, wait a minute, that, what? We can be counted righteous. Why? Because he will bear all of your sins. So the wise men offered him myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead. You understand that God was foreshadowing what would come. The Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. And then Jesus said this about himself. Luke 9, he he says these words. The son of man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed. But make make no mistake, on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, now if I had been Jesus, quite honestly, I'd let this part out. Honestly, I'm writing the message and I'm thinking, we're doing really good, Lord, but do we need to share like this last little part? You remember who he's talking to? He's talking to a a group of people that understand cross. They understand the Roman cross. They understand what death on a cross looks like. And then Jesus speaks these words. If any of you wants to be my follower, then you'll be blessed and uh, prosperous every day for the rest of your life. That's not what he said. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. And then he looks at a people that understood. We don't understand the cross. I try to explain it to the best of my ability, but I know I come so far short. And he looks at a group of people and he says, you know what, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to die to yourself. And you've got to take up your cross the ultimate of self-denial and follow me and literally it means to to take up your cross daily and that's what I have to do you may be a lot more spiritual than me but every day I struggle with me sometimes and I get selfish and I get prideful and I have to go to the cross every day and and Jesus reminds, this is what I did for you and I say oh God the least I could do would be give you my life he didn't say you just say this sweet little prayer of salvation and then go do whatever you want that's not what he said he said if you want to be my disciple then you got to deny yourself you got to take up your cross and follow me it's not a hobby it's not an add on I asked a guy at the gym this week. Man, I was so convinced this guy was a follower of Jesus. Man, I was so convinced. He's awesome. He's got a body like Hercules. sickening. He wears tank tops. But he's he's like the nicest guy in the gym. I'm looking at some of the guys. I know they know who I'm talking about. He's like the nicest guy, isn't he? I mean, he just, he's sickening. He, He encourages you. I told him, I said, man, you look good. He said, man, I just want to be like you. And I thought, liar. Because I'll switch with you right now, brother. I'm going to tell you. I'll take everything you got. I don't even know what it looks like, but I'll take it. I said, are you a Christian? And, and he stumbled. He struggled. How, how can... can you struggle if you understand the depth of his pain? The extent that he went to display his love. Honestly, denying yourself and following Jesus with your whole heart sounds like the only reasonable response for all that he's done for us. are some of you that are about to experience His grace in a way that you've never experienced it before. There's uh, There's this weight, this shame, this guilt that you're carrying. It's nasty. It's kicking your rear end. You try to be better. You try to do better. You try to straighten up. Nothing's worked here's what I want you to know I say this a lot but I hope somehow you understand it this morning maybe if you've not understood it before is that God's crazy about you he loves you more than you could possibly imagine that's that's why he experienced the pain that he experienced the beating the allowed him to punch him in the face. That's that's why he he allowed them to pull out his beard by the handfuls. That's why he stood in front of a, a mock trial and allowed them to sentence him to death on a cross and never speak a word. He never fought for his rights. You know why? Because his love for you was greater. I don't care what you think you've done. I don't care how bad you think you are. That's a lie. God's crazy about you. And he 's proved it, and on the third day he was raised from the dead, he is alive, and it's Christmas, and sweet baby Jesus in a manger is sweet, silent night, holy night is awesome, but there's more to it than that and maybe you're here this morning and you've never maybe you've never heard it that way. somehow God has just so spoke to you and he's grasped your attention and Right now, he's saying, I want, you to, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to lay your life down. I want you to deny yourself. I want you to lay your life down. I want you to give it all up, and I want you to follow me. Aren't you ready? How could you just tell him no? Every head's bowed, every eye's closed. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you'd like to be, then maybe you'd pray a prayer something like this. Maybe you just tell him, God, I, just, I never understood it. I never got it until this morning. But now I get it. So I'm just asking you if you'll just forgive me. Forgive me for all my sin. And God, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around all that you went through that your love for me was so great that it is so great that you would go to that extent. But I'm glad you did. And I need you. So from this day forward to the best of my ability, I want to die to me. And I want to live for you. Lord, you're awesome. Man, I was thinking a few minutes ago, we were singing that song. You alone, God, you alone are worthy. You are awesome. And we deserve none of it. But you made us worthy. I still can't get my brain wrapped around it. So I say thank you, but I know that's not enough. I tell you that I love you, and yet, Lord, compared to what you feel about me, I don't even know if I like you a lot. Use us, Lord. Use us as a church to be faithful to share your great love with people that are desperate to hear it. And it's in your sweet name that we pray.